Hello, this is Morgan Snyder, and welcome to another edition of the Become Good Soil podcast. The following is a reflection I wrote after ongoing ventures in recent years through the message paraphrase of Matthew 21, the passage commonly referred to as the clearing of the temple. My hope is that the following reflection might help us thirsty ones peel back the glaze of over-familiarity and experience the scene afresh as we find ourselves among the crowd in the temple on that day. Walk into the scene with me for a few moments. The swollen air of spring in Jerusalem, the dirt-packed roads of the bustling marketplace, throngs of folks kicking up dust to mix with the day's gossip, street peddlers clamoring, children playing games, animals under load, winding their way through busy streets. Everyday life is being momentarily suspended. Rumors have been building of certain happenings. The entire community, young and old, has poured out onto the street, caught up in the excitement of this day. It's the inauguration of a king. Long has the ache deepened for the one to come and lead the people, restoring goodness to the land of Israel. The people believe that Jesus is it, and the time has come. Their time has come. As the scriptures describe, crowds went ahead and crowds followed, men, women, and children, swamping this main corridor through the city center, people ripping palm branches off aged trees to lay as homage on the dusty road, men and women peeling off their cloaks, creating a carpet of honor for the coming king, wild cheering, exaltation, anticipation charging the air, yet straining nerves as well. The officials are beside themselves. What can they make of this? Matthew renders it this way. As Jesus made his entrance into Jerusalem, the whole city was shaken and unnerved. And this is all prologue. It is in this context, this atmosphere, that Jesus dismounts the donkey, leaves the parade, and enters the temple courts. Men have turned his father's house into a den of thieves, and he is livid. He begins first with the throwing of a single chair, its front legs splintering into pieces against the ancient column. With all his force, he kicks over tables heavy laden with merchandise. Chaos and outrage ensue, more than ever encountered in this place. Really? Really? What would you do? You see, we cannot appreciate the scriptures until we enter deep into them in the most personal manner. We must hear the commotion, the yelling and playing of children, the haggling of transactions in the marketplace temple. We must smell the stench of the crowded streets. We must feel the tension, the atmosphere pregnant with a sharp blend of anticipation and rattled nerves. Like me, you have no doubt heard the stories and even celebrated Palm Sunday and Easter week. 
But never before had I linked this narrative together in a way that opened up even more of the marvel of Jesus's personality and his unique union with his father. This is not how one might expect a king to act in the delicate moment of a deeply anticipated coronation. Surely, this is the kind of moment where it would be wise not to rock the boat. Tension is high, expectation even higher. All eyes are on Jesus. And it is in this precise moment and atmosphere that he goes straight into the temple and throughout everyone who had set up shop buying and selling, he kicked over tables of loan sharks and stalls of dove merchants. Chaos, disorder, mayhem, loan sharks yelling at Jesus as they throw themselves on the marble floor, desperately grasping at scattered coins. Not exactly the kind of presidential acceptance speech one would think Jesus might offer to unite the people and mark his coronation and long-anticipated rule. Notice he moves in the exact opposite energy of the lure of the atmosphere around him. How strong the pool must be to quietly smile and to, quote, choose his battles wisely, to not rock the boat, waiting for another moment on another day to address the corrupted system that has ravaged the hearts and pocketbooks of sincere folks who truly want to worship God. But Jesus is different. He is not ruled by the false self, not informed by habitual reactions and pre-programmed responses, crafted with sophistication like us over decades to disengage from real relationship in order to self-protect and avoid shame. Jesus is free free to move in the service of love. He lives in union with his Father, ever accessing the resources of heaven that flow freely into him. Ever aware of what his Father wants to bring through him in his day as a man walking among us and making a particular life available to us. It is the next line that grabs my heart and which I never before heard connected with this scene of mayhem. Immediately after Matthew describes the pandemonium of Jesus kicking over tables, manhandling greedy men, and inciting riot, we have this line. Now, there was room for the blind and the crippled to get in. They came to Jesus, and he healed them. Stunning. Jesus is not merely reacting in anger out of retaliation against the money changers. He is no hothead unbridled in overwhelming rage. Far from it. Notice how he is able to shift fluidly, without hesitation, between various styles of relating, soul to soul, with others, depending on the leading of love. First, we observe how Jesus operates in this heroically defiant move against evil that has taken siege of the temple, his father's house. Then, in the very next moment, he moves in utter intimacy, offering love, connection, even physical touch to the broken and the lame. These are the outcasts. These are those who have the least, 
who are the least, whose lives exist in the shadows of the community and of the temple. Jesus sees them differently. He knows that this temple is his father's idea. It is intended to be a house of healing, a house of kingdom come, divine light reaching from the heavens into humanity, touching and transforming the lives of God's people. It is men who have made it a hangout for thieves. In union with his father, free and flowing, Jesus turns on a dime from this bold move against to this profoundly intimate move toward. He speaks, touches, makes room, and makes way for the outcast. And he heals them, his honored guests of the coronation. And I love what comes next. Naturally, the religious leaders, or the version of churchianity of the day, are outraged. Of course, all their scheming to build their personal religious kingdoms and line their own pocketbooks has been called into question and uprooted from these ancient marble floors. This outsider has caused great threat to their personal ambitions. And in the background, in moments of stillness and in a rare and wonderful quietness, not yet known in this bustling market, brooding among the crowd as they witnessed firsthand miracles. It is the children who begin celebrating loudly. Of course, it always is. The children know. You see, they have yet to mature in growing elaborate fig leaves to self-protect and to hide their true selves from the dangers of this world and the risk of being known and being seen. That's why Jesus says the way into the kingdom is to become like them. The children tell good from bad and right from wrong. They aren't caught up in politics or power plays. Their hearts know whatever just happened in this temple on this day, it is really, really good. The celebration of the little ones incites even more rage in the religious leaders. What will Jesus do? What will his next move be? All eyes are on him. What sort of defense or rebuttal do you offer into this narrative being played out before so many? Tables have been thrown. Money has been scattered. Ravaged bodies have been healed. Leaders have been outraged. Kids have celebrated. And then we get this moment. Matthew says it this way. Fed up, Jesus turned on his heels, and he left them for the city of Bethany, where he spent the night. Just like that, Jesus bails. He doesn't offer a rebuttal or even reach to clean up any of the mess he made in the temple and in the hearts of men. He simply turns and leaves it all behind. He heads out in this daring act of moving away. He really doesn't care what they think about him, any of them. He is unconcerned with how they choose to interpret his actions or his motives, unconcerned with what the outcomes might or might not be from this wild chaos which he has so conveniently ensued. He simply shakes the dust off his feet. He stays in union with his father and he moves on 
choosing solitude, the soul-centering quietness of a solo walk, and the reviving safety of his favorite town in the land. It's amazing, really. We simply do not do the narrative justice if we read it with the end in mind. That's not how it happened. We have to insert ourselves deeply into the text. We must smell and feel and question and wonder what it must have been like right there with him. Jesus' freedom to move against the evil of his day and in a moment turn fluidly moving toward the outcasts with scandalous intimacy and then in the next moment to move away and simply depart the scene, entrusting all of it to his father. It is simply staggering. And then, my favorite part of the story, this next verse. Early in the next morning, Jesus was returning to the city of Jerusalem. He was hungry. Okay, now, I'm not a rocket scientist or a neurosurgeon, but I will take a stab at Relational 101. You've just paraded into Jerusalem the day before to be crowned king and then caused a mass riot to break out in the temple performed some miracles that violated ancient customs and laws, and then slipped out of town right before you can be seized and tortured by the establishment. And if you find yourself the next morning both miraculously alive and rather hungry, do you think it would be wise to head straight back into the lion's den of Jerusalem for an egg McMuffin and a handful of figs? The courage, the freedom, the love at work in this man. Once again, Jesus moves in a way that is opposite to the energy in the atmosphere. And rather than hiding out safe in the countryside, he moves toward entering back into the city, offering a smile, some hugs, and then sits down with a few friends and sips on a caramel latte. Jesus is the wild one. No one has ever lived a more whole and daring life than this man. No one provides us a better model of love. No one provides a better portrait of what it looks like to live as a son whose personality takes upon a quality of eternity, living beyond personal temperament and being free and constrained by love to move fluidly through all of the predominant styles of relating. Jesus is simply unmoved by the opinion of others. By being rooted in his Father and the infinite resources of his kingdom, he is unencumbered by the hindrances of outcomes. Dallas Willard was once asked, if you could use one word to describe what Jesus was like, what you truly encounter when you engaged him, what would it be? After a long pause, as there is always a long pause with Dallas, he offered this. Oh, Jesus was very relaxed. Of course, it's a way of saying that there has never been anyone more comfortable in his own skin. Jesus was at ease with himself. He knew who he was He lived from a place rooted and established in love. 
And from observing this text, I would risk humbly adding that Jesus was also deeply unpredictable. Not in a chaotic sense, but rather, Jesus was not programmed, not reaction-driven predictability. People simply never knew what he might do next, never know what love will do. His life was response-driven. He lived, as Dallas has said, in a God-bathed, God-breathed, God-reality. We can have this life. And we can have his life. It is the central work of his heart and his kingdom. His principal intention is to make you like him through his life. He is asking your consent to live in you, to guard you, and to guide you into the ever-increasing reality, a real faith, deepening hope, and radical love. If we are willing to risk some honest consideration of the life of our souls, take some honest inventory of our habitual patterns in relationship and pre-programmed responses to circumstances, particularly with those whose care we've been entrusted with, we can be transformed over time into the kind of people who live out wholeheartedness in union with the kingdom of God. We can access moment by moment the abundance of supernatural provision flowing through us, just as Jesus did. We can crucify the part of us ruled and governed by not yet met desires. We can partner with God in a way that allows us to bring his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, and we can be constrained only by love. Love for God, love for ourselves, love for others. We can move against in valiant courage. We can move toward an extravagant empathy and knowing of another. We can move away in heroic disentangling of fears, concerns, and compulsive needs of others. In choosing to engage in the real and raw practices that allow us to participate in an increasing atmosphere of love, we can become like him and have a life that takes on a quality of eternity. And the children will rejoice. I hope you've enjoyed this reflection on the Matthew 21 passage of the clearing of the temple. I suggest that you return to the text again as captured by Matthew and immerse yourself in it. Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal Jesus afresh. Ask to see him even more truly as he is so that you might offer him your consent to become like him as he is making possible in this hour of this day. If you're interested in diving even deeper, you can go to becomegoodsoil.com to the particular posting of this podcast and find links to all sorts of other resources on the styles of relating and the life, as Walter Bruggeman says, of this wild, dangerous, unfettered, and free son of man. 
I look forward to connecting in a future episode of the Become Good Soil podcast. Thanks for listening.